Welcome, this is the Change Creator Podcast. Hey, what's going on everybody? Welcome back to the Change Creator Podcast show. This is your host, Adam Force. And right now I'm feeling pretty freaking pumped up because we just released issue 27 of Change Creator Magazine. Um, and that's with Nasreen Sheik. Nasreen not only escaped child slavery and got an education, but she has now started two companies and she is combating women's rights in Nepal and child labor. Really impressive story, inspiring and full of great insights. It's gonna make you wanna get up and take on the world. So don't miss out on that. Last week, guys, if you missed the episode, is with Jesse and Marie. They're the founders of North Star Messaging and Strategy. All things we talk about, copy, content, strategy, storytelling, you name it. They are also experts that contributed to our Captivate program. So don't want to miss that one. A lot of good insights. Today, we're going to be talking with Mo Carrick. And Mo is an entrepreneur. She's the author of Brave Space Workplace and she is a TEDx speaker as well. Um, she's done several of those. So we're gonna talk to her about her primary mission right now, and that is to make your company fit for human life. So this is gonna be a really interesting uh, discussion. I wanted to talk to Mo because I'm very interested in that kind of conversation. The company culture is so important um, to the growth and success of any startup. And if you could start when you're small and then have that culture continue as you grow, um, that is huge. That's a huge win. So we're gonna dive into that right now with Mo. Guys, leave us a review. We're now on Spotify, we are on iTunes, all the good platforms, SoundCloud, you name it. Uh, leave us a review. We really appreciate that. It helps us out big time. All right, let's talk to Mo. I know you're going to dig this. Hey, Mo, welcome to the Change Creator Podcast show. How's everything going today? Thanks, Adam. Everything's going great. Really happy to join you. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Happy to have you here. Um, I am excited to learn more about your new book, Brave Space Works, uh, Workplace. Um, I love the idea of it, and we're going to dive into that. But before we do, I just want to get, I like to get a sense of what's going on in your world right now. Like, what's, what's mm -hmm. the latest and greatest? Um, let's just tap into that real quick. Oh, man. You know, what's latest and greatest for me right now this week is that I'm a, in my spare time, in my volunteer role, I serve as the lead organizer and licensee for a TED event. Um, TEDx Bend is our local event here in Central Oregon, where I live. And we had our event uh, a week ago, Saturday, and we've had two different uh, two, two speakers that have generated a ton of social media buzz, both positive and negative. And for me, that's been... Um, a super interesting process about, um, uh, you know, how to respond, how to, wh where not to respond in social media. Yeah. What does that mean in terms of real connection and authenticity? So, um, it's been, that's been what's right, right up in front of me right now. Awesome. Sounds exciting. So I'm, I, and you did a Ted talk too. So you, I'd like to learn a little bit just about your, your history and how you got to where you are now and everything that you're doing and writing books and all this exciting stuff and what led you to pursue this stuff? Like there must be some triggers in your past. 
<laughs> that's a that's a great word because sometimes I think of trigger as being the way that Brene Brown, who's one of my mentors, uses it, which is being triggered into shame. Uh, but I think you're you're touching more like triggered into launching. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I've given a couple TED talks, and that's been really a privilege and fun um, fun to do, and I've I've learned a lot. My trajectory at this stage in my career. Um, still feels like a surprise to me. I was an English major in college, and my past, my passion really was um, the wilderness. I worked as a wilderness guide for um, some organizations that a lot of people know, Outward Bound, the National Outdoor Leadership School, and I really cut my teeth on group work in that context, and um, and then got a chance to work with a few corporate groups, and at a crossroads point when I was needing to decide, should I get an advanced degree clinically, because I was working with a lot of youth at risk, or should I do something else, like an MBA, a friend of mine was enrolled in a graduate program in organizational development. And I was like, well, that's interesting. That's like therapy for people at work. And uh, so pick that road. And that's been an amazing process. Yeah. The rest is history, right? <laughs> right. As they say. Yeah. <laughs> and how did you, are you, is Brene Brown a mentor as in like digitally, or you actually know her and are working with her in some capacity? Well, I actually know her. I would it would be a stretch to say that I work with her in a close capacity, but I'm one of her certified Dare to Lead and Daring Way facilitators. So Brene trains a core of people to enact her work and um, and disseminate the models throughout the world. And I've been involved almost from the beginning. I got certified in her approach in 2014, and then have picked up the newest certification with her latest book, which is called Dare to Lead. So I use it quite a bit in my work with leaders um, developing a, a courage practice. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And how is that going for your practice? You know, it's going really well. For me, having been in this field a long time, Brene's work, as well as the work of some others like Daniel Goleman and Patrick Lencioni, but Brene's in particular has really struck a chord with moving the work that we used to call the soft stuff, you know, the people stuff was always called the soft stuff, to a much more um, solid body of the workplace in terms of having tangible data and evidence that points to what we in the field have always known, um, which is that this stuff drives and breaks businesses small and large. So it's been a great tool set to support leaders with. Um, Her her latest book is, of course, kind of a blockbuster bestseller. And I think it's because it's pretty concrete and it is based on research. And it's, uh, you know, I haven't met anybody yet who learns the content and says, oh, that doesn't really relate to me. Right. Right. So that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Wow. I haven't read that book. I'll have to check it out. Sounds like it's getting a lot of praise. Mm-hmm. Um, now you mentioned Patrick Lencioni and you're the first and only person I've ever heard drop that name on a change creator <laughs> podcast oh, really? and he is also I'm a huge fan I read several of his books and my favorite being uh, getting naked <laughs> I love his yeah. book about vulnerability um, man I read that years ago too and I actually liked it so much that I was managing a team when I was doing mm. work over at WebMD, and I, I bought the book for everybody on my team <laughs> so they can read it. Right. No, yeah, it's and, great. It's, yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Lencioni really talks about that baseline foundation element of team health, which is the presence of, of trust, which yes. he describes as, you know, that we get that through vulnerability. And that's very much what Brene's uh, work on connection and courage is all about um, yes. as well. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny because you hear expert after expert talk, but when you get down to it and these types of topics, right, um, there is a fundamental message. And yeah, it, it come, like there is no way around it. It does come down to vulnerability. So however you want to position or express or tell stories to get that point across, whether it's Lencioni or it's, you know, Brene Brown at the, at the core, they're, they're driving home a very similar message because it, I think that's just... There's no way around that, really, <laughs> right? No, I think you're right. And the way I sometimes say it is, you know, people are what make companies great. And people are not machines. And so we, the, the, the alchemy and the science of learning how to activate the best that our people can bring to work every day is, is um, it's complex. Yes. And it's nuanced. And, um, and we know that we as human beings have a very core essential need for human connection. We now know that Abraham Maslow, who had a lot right on his hierarchy of human needs, he had some things wrong. And one was that he put the need for human connection like midway up the hierarchy. And we now know that it's as important as air, water, shelter, and safety. Yeah. We are social beings. We just need it. And we bring that need right into the workplace, don't we? Yeah, 100%. You know, um, you know, Lencioni had this book, uh, Three Signs of like a, a miserable, miserable Job. job. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I read that and I was like, man. And I literally was one of the people that put the steps into practice with my team. And I was going out to take people, to our team, to like these lunches where we'd have these in depth conversations. And we got into this part where we were talking about like, what made like historical jobs that other people on our team had. And the reason they would leave or they were unhappy, the number one reason, just like Lencioni said, it was always about lack of appreciation, mm, <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's right. these fundamentals that make or break a, a great leader. Right. Well, yeah, I, th- I think it's so true. And I was just talking with a client this morning about, um, their frontline leaders, you know, this was an executive team and, and, um, of a, of a tech company. And we were talking about their frontline leaders, which are the ones that are kind of farther out in the organization, supervising the, the folks that are maybe at the most entry level and just how imperative those roles are, because, you know, we do know our company primarily through our relationship with our boss, our immediate boss. And I think this is an interesting dynamic for startups and for entrepreneurs, because they might be in fact, a fabulous boss, but if they're if they grow and when they grow and and as they add layers of management hierarchy if they're not really activating those people's leaders to be people centered then an employee farther out in the food chain can have actually a very very negative experience with the organization because they have a poor connection you know with their boss yeah so yeah that makes sense hmm interesting and so, so just I want to I want to just cover off on some of your book because we're getting into these interesting ideas. Mm. So, Brave Space Workplace, making your company fit for human life. Uh, by the way, I love that tagline, <laughs> "Fit for Human Thank Life." You. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. Uh, really, really cool. Um, now, obviously, I have not read this book, um, so tell us about it. Oh, great. Well, um, I hope you can read it on a flight. Like I tried to, I tried to keep it really condensed. A friend of mine reminded me after my first book, look, Mo, anybody can tell a story in a lot of words, but how do you tell a story in, in fewer words? So I, I tried to make it like a digestible book, but I really unpack sort of two, two main things. And my, my company, by the way, is a benefit corp. So we're a certified benefit cool. corp. Nice. Um, we've been in the space um, for a while now, and we don't only work with other conscious companies or triple bottom line or benefit companies, but 
we definitely have a, um, a bias towards trying to make sure that business is doing right by, by doing good. And, um, and so with this book, I try to tackle a bunch of complex topics, but what I'm, who I'm really wanting to speak to are leaders of organizations, founders of organizations, as well as any people, uh, development or human resources staff that are in there. Um, and I'm looking at two main things. One is what is it that we now know fully about what it is that people need from work? And those currencies have changed, of course, haven't they, Adam, like over the course of our lifetimes? And I think I'm a little older than you, but um, what my children are looking for from work is quite different than what I was looking for work and certainly than what my parents you know, were looking for from work. Um, so I, I have built on the research I did with my co-author on my first book, which is called Fit Matters, How to Love Your Job, that was more for job seekers um, of elements that we need from work. And then I, in Brave Space, I move into what I call the five levers for creating a Brave Space workplace. Um, and those I can review with you, but those are basically kind of what are the things, what are the strings we would pull um, and do and can pull as leaders in organizations to make sure that our workplace is one where, and I'll just give you the definition I use for a Brave Space workplace, it's really one where people can show up as they are, both perfect and flawed and do great things together. Yeah. You know, that's what we're, that's what we're striving for. Awesome. You know, and, and when you said you tried to keep it condensed, the quote came to mind and I I think it's, was it Hemingway? They said, uh, if I had more time, I would say less. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I'd write a shorter, shorter book if I had more time. It's so true. (laughs) Um, when is that going to be, is that, when's it going to be available? Well, it's in pre-purchase right now um, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and independent uh, bookstore outlets. And then the actual release date is May twenty-first. May twenty-first. Okay, nice. Well, that's pretty exciting for you, and, and it looks like you've done several TED talks. And um, so, before we actually, actually, before we talk about TED talks, um, mm. your process. I mean, here you are. You have, um, you know, these. You've got a couple books now. What ha- what can you tell us about the process of putting together a book um, and getting it published? Ha <laughs> ha! Yes, I, I don't remember from your website. Have you published your own book? We have not. We're actually in a discussion with Simon and Schuster, which reminds nice. me I do need to get back to them because they were thinking about taking a bunch of our content from the magazines and stuff and doing mm-hmm. something cool. Mm, yeah, totally. They'd be a great publisher, I think, based on other things I know that are with them. It, you know, it's been the most fascinating process. I love that you asked it because when I was young, I mentioned I was an English major. So I had like this fantasy image of myself. I was a reporter in college and I thought that I was going to be like the next big scoop, you know. And then after that, I thought I was going to be a fiction writer. And I never did. All Over the years, I've had all these ideas like, I'm going to write this book and that book. And I just never did it. And then eventually, because of the trajectory of my professional path and the nature of my business, um, I ended up deciding to launch into the first book with Cammie Dunaway. And I had met Cammie as a client. She was then the CMO of Nintendo of America. She'd come there um, from Yahoo and from Pepsi. And Cammie took that job. I was coaching the executive team and she felt that that was going to be the job of her dreams. And it ended up being not the job of her dreams. It wasn't a great fit. And, um, not for any bad, anything bad about her or about Nintendo. It just really wasn't right for her. So we started kicking around this idea, like, you know, it really is hard to know where can my talents best be utilized from the outside. So we, we started thinking about, could we write a book about that? And we didn't know anything about writing a book in the (laughs) space. All we knew was that we knew the business book space was cluttered, but, um, it it was a fascinating journey. That book took a while, took us about a year 
um, co-authoring was wonderful in terms of like having an accountability partner, um, being able to have a comrade in arms. You know, we had some funny conversations, like one of which um, you might relate to. At one point, we were both supposed to deliver a chapter this one month and we were going to connect. And I was filled with shame because I hadn't made any progress because what had happened to me was I was getting on the internet and I was like searching, like who else has said anything about this topic? And I got just so overwhelmed with my gosh, everybody, somebody has said everything that I (laughs) want to say, like I I have nothing, you know, to offer. So I got on the phone with Cammy, like Cammy, you know, we just, I just suck, you know, I just can't, I have nothing unique to say. And so I haven't written anything, you know, on this chapter this month. And she laughed and she's like, oh, thank you so much for saying that. The same thing's true for me. Like just, you know, I think what's true for me about writing a book and also writing articles and things, which I do for several magazines is this huge vulnerability because you, you just, um, get into comparative shaming and it can take the wind out of your sails. Plus there's, you know, writer's block and the, all the self-esteem stuff that comes up with like, is there anything worthy worth saying? So, so that's a long way of getting to my process, which is that I think I'm a gutted out kind of person. Um, Cammy and I wrote the first book in a more deliberate and structured way. I think she brought that to the work brave space. I did differently. I was on my own. She's taken a job as the CMO of Duolingo. So she's, she's not, she wasn't really available. Yeah. Really cool job. She's loving it there. Um, but I knew I was on my own. I had some timing around which I wanted to get it out because I did have a publishing contract. So we wrote a proposal first, got a contract, and then that made it much easier for me to get the second contract. And so I, I knew, the timing, but I, for the second book, I decided to pretty much sequester myself for lack of a better word, like where I just took about six weeks. I mean, I still had to work and be a parent and be a wife and a daughter and all that, but I pretty much just took chunks of time, like two, three days. And I just cranked out content. And then I would go back after a week and and reflect on it. You know, some people write a little bit and then they edit it for me the harder part is like getting in the deep work of saying, okay, what is it I'm trying to say? And then I can edit it later, but it's yeah. the getting yeah. the deep work. Like, what is it I want to say? That's the hard part. So I really have to like, just get alone, close the door, turn off the phone, turn off the internet. And just like, what do you want to say? You stupid person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just uh, get it out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I totally get that. And you know, we've done a fair amount of writing, but never have written a book. And I've talked to a few people now, and it's interesting to hear people's processes. And, you know, you mentioned the comparative stuff with competition. And, you know, we before that talked about how business is changing. Um, and I got to tell you, like, I am as, as we grow, I am more, I'm less and less concerned. I'm starting to really believe to not care about the competition anymore. I, I barely even pay attention to it because I feel like, and I'm curious, I'm saying this because I'm curious in your opinion, mm. and it's when you are driven by your identity, your values, and 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 your own story of like why you're doing what you're doing, right? Mm. Nobody, like that is a differentiation. So to me, it doesn't matter what everyone else is doing because you're going to have your own anecdotes, your own mission, your own values, and you're going to tell a story that's going to resonate with certain people who want to hear it the way you tell it, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's so true. And I think, I think we live in 
a culture of comparison, right? Yeah. I, and um, and I don't think it serves us. I, I think we and we we see a lot of um, negative consequences of the 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 sort of shallow comparisons. I think social media doesn't help with that, where we have sort of curated identities that make it look like yes. everything's just perfect. And um, and so I think you're you know good for you. And I, I think it's it's spot on around like what am I doing with my with my life, with the, how I roll, with my company, um, and, and getting as centered and, as you said, as value centered around, you know, what do I believe is right and true, and then and then acting in accordance with that. That's almost always going to serve you, I think, as opposed yeah. to kind of hustling for, like, I want to, I want to catch this wave or I want to do this, you know, just because that other person's doing it and I want to keep up. And, you know, for business leaders, I think that's really common. I write about this a little bit in the book because the, the mega companies, you know, the Google, Amazon, Facebook, um, some of the real big ones, Apple are really leading the way right now in terms of what gets published in the popular business, um, periodicals and publications. And, um, and it they make it look like, the way that those mega companies are doing, for example, people's strategy and culture is the way that everybody should do it. And that's not my lived experience. Um, so in, in Brave Space, I try to tackle the environment that I'm more frequently in. And I have worked with some of those mega companies and I've loved that work and I feel grateful for it. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of employees today work for small to mid-sized companies. And those challenges are quite different. You know, yeah. if I have 30 people working for me, I can't do some of the things that Google, Google can do around employee rewards or employee sure. development or career pathing. So I have to really think about a whole different set of levers for activating my talent. Um, but that's our reality today is that the majority of employees do work for small to mid-sized companies. So um, trying to give a set of tools for those leaders is what I was up to a bit with Brave Space. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I, I love that you're working with the, the mid-sized or even smaller companies more. Um, one of the things I was just, I, I just watched this documentary with my wife about the food industry, right? And I'm, mm. every time I'm l- looking at businesses at any kind, I am thinking about just how business is changing. And when I look at the food industry and you see mm. all the kind of like BS marketing they do with labeling and getting people to think oh. something's healthy, you know, fat free, all that kind of stuff. I'm sitting here thinking, you're put, if you were going to have your kids taken to work or you're going to buy something from a person, like you want to know who that is. Like who, like, mm. it's like, you know, I, I don't go with a stranger, right? But we go mm. and we buy products that we eat and digest and we rely on from people that we have no idea why they started that company, who they are, what do they stand for? Like, do I even trust you? And the answer yeah. is clear to me is that no, you don't. So today yeah. I'm starting to feel like, we should be, we got to know who's behind that business and why. Like, so the local or the small companies that are all popping up now that are conscious and B Corps, like I can see that this is a huge shift, right? So like, I want to know who I'm buying from and why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, good for you. And, and we can usually like get access to them. And I think one of the things that I've seen with leaders I've worked with in some of the publicly held companies, again, which I have some in my portfolio, but man, my heart bleeds for them because the leadership challenges when you need to have quarter over quarter or even month over month profit in an unrelenting upward direction to the right, it's really, really hard. And when we think about long-term sustainability, of course, we know that the profit models of Adam Grant 
Kantian 18th century um, philosophers is outdated. And so at the same time, our business structure, particularly in regards to publicly held companies, is still grounded in those mindsets, which create a a, a really untenable situation for for the leaders, the the people-centered leaders that are within them genuinely perhaps trying to do the right thing. Um, so I, I feel like there's a, a big opportunity for, for those companies to really think about and impact our economic modeling broadly, but then also for the other smaller or nonprofit or other other organized companies to say, okay, well, I don't have that same pressure of relentless quarter over quarter, month over month profit. So how will I, you know, sure, I need to be profitable, but how will I do that in the context of the dynamics that impact my, my business and my employees in my community. Uh, yeah, exactly. I love that. And, and I, and think you're right. I mean, it's the, I would never take a company public. <laughs> you know? No, I would no. never go public. Cause then every decision you make is going to be flawed because you're going to be so tempted to have a corrupt decision based on money versus why you're actually running that business. Right. right. Um, Volkswagen was a great example in 2015 when they, what was it? The clean air act or something. And they like went in a lab with their car to pass a certain uh, test for uh, emissions like an emissions test and they were they were passing the test there with their like uh, uh, test dummy car but when the cars that were actually produced and put out on the road they were 40 times the emission regulation and mm-hmm. it was a huge scandal I'm sure you must remember some headlines yeah, on Volkswagen exactly. but yeah, 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 like for it's sure. things like that and it was only because they didn't ha- they couldn't it was too cost uh, too costly to do it the right mm-hmm. way you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tough tough stuff and these are human beings making these decisions and you know I think part of where I come from and what motivated me to to really, you know, like take the time and effort required to to write the second book is that I'm sort of tired of, you know, having been in business, having been consulting to leaders at all levels now for 30 years. Um, You know, we, I got my graduate degree in 1989 and we know then what we know now about what it takes to activate people in healthy, vibrant ways to build community, to take care of our external world. Um, We know what it takes. It's not a lack of knowledge at this point that is keeping us from making some of the decisions. And I don't mean to minimize how complex all of these decisions are. I was just thinking about them today in terms of my my own use of of clothing because I have a big speaking event and my mind started drifting. I was like, oh, I need to get a new outfit for that event. And then I was like, really, Mo? Do you, you know, do you actually really need a new outfit? You know, you don't have one of your f- very full closet is there's not an outfit there that you can use or can you borrow from a friend, you know, but I have to really think my, there, there's some values and some beliefs that I hold that interfere with my own ability, for example, to not just go out and buy a piece of clothing that I don't need uh, <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> for a one-time event. <laughs> I totally hear you. Um, so I'm curious because when you say make um, the workplace fit for human life, um, I just want to talk a little bit about that. So how do you, and I know we're kind of like jumping in and touching on a number of these things already uh, in different ways, but like when you say something like that, that that's what, of all things, that's what stands out to me, making the workplace fit for human life. Um, so I'd like to hear from you just like really what does that mean? And I guess what, like we talk about how things are changing. So how are things changing and what, like what does that workplace fit for human life mean to you? Mm, that's a great question. I love the way you asked it. Thank you. You know, what I've landed on is that I think there are 
about seven things that we really need from work today. And the one that is the most familiar to most of us is the first one that I that I name in the book, which is to meet our basic needs, which in a capitalist society we do by making enough money or non-cash compensation to provide food, clothing, shelter, and safety for ourselves and our loved ones. That's, that's the easiest, most straightforward thing. We need to meet our basic needs. Even that need has changed over time because younger generations are looking ahead, especially the millennials who have lived through the recession and are actually not that optimistic and in many cases are not going to do better financially than their parents um, professionally. So they're eschewing things like, do I need to own a home? Do I even need to own a car? So their notion of meeting their basic needs is is really different. Um, I see that in my own children um, who are millennials or Generation Zers, right? Um, the second need we have from work is to contribute. And this is on Maslow's hierarchy, right? We, we need to do something that matters to someone. And this doesn't mean we have to work for a socially or environmentally minded business, but it means to me that we need to know what about what we're doing matters. And I'll give you just a tiny example. When I was much younger... I think I took a job to live in a certain town in college because I wanted to be my boyfriend. Really good reason to take a good job in a strange town. But the job I took was that I was a janitor at a hospital because it worked. I worked like seven to three, and then we could go have fun, you know, in the evenings. And this was a pretty basic job. I was cleaning rooms and. A woman that was in a room that I was working died. She had come in for a gallbladder surgery, and she died. It was unexpected because it was gallbladder surgery. And that same day, my boss sat me down, and he said, you know, I want to talk to you about Mrs. So-and-so who died, and do you know why she died? And I was like 18, and I was like, oh, she got sick. You know, I don't know why she died. (laughs) And he said, well, well, she died because she contracted an infection here at the hospital because she came in without that infection, right? And he said, and it's possible that the infection that she got was contributed to or even existed because we or someone else that does the same job cleaning the rooms failed to clean the room in the proper order the using the chemicals oh and the water right exactly and all of a sudden it was like a whammo moment for me it was like whoa this thing i'm doing this silly little summer job that gets me close to my boyfriend all of a sudden elevated so much in importance because i started to feel like you know what this little thing i'm doing this actually matters and it matters that I do it right. Because, gosh, I, I have had family members in the hospital. I don't want them to die when they come in for routine surgery. So, you know, that's true for every employee out there in every single job, whether you're changing tires or you're the CEO. But what is it about this that I'm contributing? Why does what I'm doing matter? And it, it matter? And if we can't connect those dots as someone's supervisor, then, then, then why should they feel fully engaged and bring their A game to work every day? Yes. Um, so. So we need to contribute. The third is to be seen, and I'm going through this quickly because it's a podcast and I know we don't have much time, but um, you know, to be seen, which is to be known. And that's also a basic human need. That means I, 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 somebody knows my name. They might know the basics of maybe my personal um, or familial situation. They recognize me. I had a client one time years ago who had an employee who started work at their factory. It was a small manufacturing company and he got injured on the first week and had to be out for three weeks, strained his back or something. No, excuse me. He was out for three months. And when he came back to work, he was asked to wait in the cafeteria until they found his supervisor and no one ever came. And he went home and no one ever called him. And he took a paycheck from that job for four months. Mm. (laughs) And 
you know, he eventually quit and he wrote a letter to the CEO who was my client and said, I was paid by your company for four months for doing nothing. No one knew even my name or where to send me to work, right? So like this is a, not only was he, was this an awful thing to have happened, but part of it was around just feeling so invisible. And, um, and that's a basic human need that we have. And we bring it right into the workplace, especially by the way, Adam, when we work full time, we spend more time at work than we do with friends and family. And so, right. And, but that's why these needs begin to matter so much. Um, So the fourth is the need to connect in real ways with other people. We are social beings. Did you know that the United Kingdom implemented a new minister of parliament in 2018 called the minister of loneliness? No. And their sole job is to tend to and take care of the loneliness epidemic they have, particularly in the rural regions of Britain um, and the United Kingdom as a whole, with the elderly. And our own Surgeon General, Vivek Murphy, has declared that loneliness in the United States has reached epidemic proportions. And interestingly enough, men suffer disproportionately from it. So we have a crisis of loneliness, and we bring that need to connect with other humans right into work. So fifthly, we need to learn, which is that we want to become better. Like no matter what job, we don't want to stay in, we don't want to stay the same and not grow over the course of our careers. And this has become even more exacerbated in the younger generations who are actually eager to learn swiftly and to take on new challenges very, very swiftly because it's part of how they've grown up Um in their generational sort of window. And then the last two are to feel supported, which is the way I define feeling supported is to be able to be brave knowing that there are risks. And that's where I'm poking at all the critical things that happen between us at work, like creativity, innovation, hard conversations, truth-telling, feedback. Those things are really important to getting the great results that we need and also to thriving as human beings. Like, we desperately need feedback. But but we need support to be able to do that. It's not that we have to guarantee safety at work, but we do want to give people the support they need so they really can be brave. Because otherwise, how do we get to the hard stuff, the the challenging stuff, the really wild-ass, hairy ideas? Yeah. We got to be able to get out there in our thinking and in our behavior. And then the last one is, is to make our lives work, which is that we're able to do the things that matter to us and are ours to do. And, and that plays out differently. You know, in my town, we have a lot of professional athletes, and um, I've talked to many of them, and they... Many of them really value the jobs they hold because it gives them the flexibility to train. Or maybe I am primary caretaker for an elderly parent, or maybe I'm a young mother or father, um, or maybe I need to be able to work nights or, you know, whatever. I need to make my life work. And increasingly, of course, these days, that's a, a key driver for people. Absolutely. Wow. That's a good summary of, of key points. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I'm trying to get at when I say fit for human life means that we as an organization, me as a company owner, are looking at those seven things. And I'm saying, okay, so what is it that I need to do to help do as much as I can to contribute to those human needs, not because I want people to be happy, really, because that's a happiness is ephemeral and employees might be grumpy on some days. They might have bad days. It's not about employee happiness for me. It's about real engagement and being able to bring my best to work on most days so that I can help my company achieve the results that I want, that they want, whether it's a mission or profit or whatever. And that's where I come at the five levers for change, which are really for leaders to to take and enact. 
hundred percent. And I think, you know, you can I'll, I compare like Volkswagen stories to a Tesla. And Tesla mm -hmm. is so driven by a mission that he has, or even Alibaba has a mission that they've stuck and made every decision by for the past, you know, 20 years. Um, and when the employees know that they're working towards something greater, like, you know, a clean energy, a world of clean energy like Tesla, it's more inspiring to be part of that, right? So I feel yeah. like there's that motivation to get up and go to work. You're not just the cog in a wheel with no direction, you know, no right. passion. Right, because you feel a place and you feel a, a reason. When I, you know, further in the book, the kind of the core chapters and what I do a lot of the work that I do in my consulting practice actually is also based on what I call these five levers creating for creating a brave space workplace. And I'll just mention them briefly that they're easy to remember. They go by a classic journalistic um, expression, right? Who, what, where, when, why, and how. And so the who is the human essentials. Two big parts of that. One is leaders with head and heart habits and the other is teams who care, which you already named, right? The what is conscious culture, Culture drives everything. It's how we do things here. And we've got to pay attention to it. But it's sort of uh, like the air we breathe. We don't notice it until it's toxic. Yes. Um, with the where and when, lever three, which is purposeful design. And I don't mean just the physical space. I mean designing everything from how we talk about performance to how we communicate in meetings. Everything can be designed in an organization poorly or well. Um, the fourth lever is the why, which you're speaking to around the the examples that you mentioned, like with Tesla, where meaning and context is critical. And then the last one is the how, which is the, I call it the soft stuff and being real. How do we cultivate authenticity? How do we generate real inclusion across difference um, in all dimensions so that people feel that they have a place here? So the, the root of the book is around giving people ideas for the activities they might undergo or undertake as leaders, kind of where to start on any of those five levers for creating that kind of work environment. I love it because we need more of it. And I think the more, and this is, you know, like there's a lot of, we kind of have common goals, right? Like we want to mm -hmm. see companies behave in this way because it's better not only for the employees, but for everybody, right? Yeah. Well, and I loved reading your story a little bit around, you know, I would call it almost a, demoralization story, which, you know, because I've had the great fortune of like writing these books and interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people, I am amazed at how many people are so miserable at work. And, you know, people like you that have a crossroads moment where they're able to say, whoa, like I'm going to change how I'm going to do it, yeah. um, are wonderful to talk with. And, and, the, and we can learn so much from those examples um, to encourage others to emulate and to find the place that really turns them on, you know, yeah. so that they can, they can contribute everything that they, that they have to offer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, my last thing I just want to touch on, if you have a few more minutes. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. This is fun. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> is you've done three TED Talks. Is that right? TEDx Talks? Okay. Yes. So there's a, there's a little, you, you have this down to a science. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have a goal. My goal is to do a TEDx talk and nice. I'm, I'm always indecisive on the topic that I really want to establish myself as an authority around. Right. Um, so I'm curious on two different things. One, um, how did you decide your topics? You know, like what made you just say, this is what I need to talk about. And then mm -hmm. two, um, any tips on getting recruited to do the Ted talk? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I 
in terms of the topic, so my first two talks, I did I did something I would not recommend that anyone ever do in a million years, and that is that I accepted to give two talks on a similar but not exactly the same topic within one month of each other. And that was the stupidest thing ever because uh, prepping for a TED Talk is so much work. And those two talks were both around the subjects of my first book, which was, which was you know, work fit. One was for sort of job seekers and the other was for workplace leaders. And um, that was really a good precursor to Brave Space. But because they were so close in time and they were my first talks, um, I think that I learned a lot and it was, it was, they were both quite hard um, for me to distill. The thing with TED, with TEDx that's so important is, you know, you have 18 minutes or less. And so the, the word that jumps out for me as a speaker, but also as an organizer of a TED event here locally is, is it's all around distilling what it is you want to say to its purest essence and really getting clear with like, why does that matter to the world? And there's a great book by Chris Anderson, who's the, um, the, the lead curator and kind of founder of, of TED, um, called TED talks. And he really writes about the process of how you distill your idea. Cause TED's all about ideas worth sharing. And so, so that's, to me, that's where the big work comes from. Once you do that, then you can kind of build the talk around it and hone it to 18 minutes. Well, something that most people don't know is that most TED talks, well, all TED talks on the main stage of TED, but also most TEDx talks, um, you are assigned a coach when you get accepted to their stage. And I've had coaches for all three of mine. And um, the coach really works with you on that distillation and then also on the presentation. So my last talk, the one I just gave in January, was really different. The title of that talk is Love men, what is women's role in healthy masculinity? And that talk's really born out of my passion for diversity and inclusion and also as a mother of two men and one woman um, to, to try to really examine a piece of the feminist movement and about our modern society that isn't getting a lot of attention, which is what's happening to men and boys. And I can't fix that. I'm not a man or boy. I think much of that work is for men and boys to do. But I do think that as a partner, mother, wife, sister, I have a role and women like me have a role. So that talk was interesting to give because it was much more personal mm. and it was in some ways more provocative. Um, it was as hard as the first two, but it was also a little bit more fun for me because it was coming um, really from like my my passion, my my gut yeah. feeling. Yeah. Um, in terms of getting on a TED, there's there's two main ways. So one is you get asked, and one is you apply, and um, sometimes they're one and the same. What I recommend that you do is go to TED.com and you can search for TEDx events around the country and find one that you think you might want to go on based on like the date that it's hosted or whatever. And most of them have an application process and you can submit the application that usually requires just a short video. You can like record yourself with your iPhone or whatever. Um, and then the gist of your idea, and most people's idea isn't what they ultimately deliver on stage, but at least gives them enough to like <laughs> interview you, you know. Um and you can also just reach out to that organizer and say, hey, I have a passion. Here's this idea that I want to share. Um, I think your your location might be a great fit for me. And then, you know, begin the conversation. And I'm happy to, personally, I'm happy to help you um, think that through separate from the podcast because I'm sure that you would have some really cool things to share with uh, with the world. Thank you. That's amazing. Well, let's make sure people know how to find you and connect with you and get your book. So if you want to give a shout out to yourself for the best place to do that. 
Awesome. Probably the easiest centralized place is just mocarrick.com. So my name is sort of funny spelling. It's M-O-E, last name C-A-R-R-I-C-K.com. And then they also, people can also find the new book on its own web uh, website, which is bravespaceworkplace.com. I have a Facebook page and a LinkedIn page, and I would love to engage with your audience and hear what they think of this podcast and how I might be able to support them in the work that they're doing. So thank you. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate your time. This was definitely a fun conversation. Um, so let's stay in touch and we'll talk again soon. Awesome. Thank you so That's much, Adam. That's all for this episode. Your next step is to join the change creator revolution by downloading our interactive digital magazine app for premium content exclusive interviews, and more ways to stay on top of your game. Available now on iTunes and Google Play or visit changecreatormag.com. We'll see you next time where money and meaning intersect right here at the Change Creator Podcast.